Stories. Fish Stories. Fish Stories. Sharing fish stories is best when you when you have somebody who has been there and been there with you. What's the good word, Fish Stories Faithful? This is Fishing Buddy. From my closet, <clears throat> I mean my studio here in Pierce, South Dakota, it's the Fish Stories Podcast, where I introduce you to amazing anglers and fishing stories from all around the world. I want to begin today by reading an excerpt from an article that was recently in the Sierra Club magazine. Here we go. Why did I assume fishing was mainly for men? Maybe because it is, at least empirically. The most recent official U.S. survey of recreational fishing efforts reports that women made up 27% of the 24.2 million American anglers in 2011. I might blame marketing. Tackle shops surround you with the idea of fishing as war. You're battling a monstrous foe, an overwrought violence I find both repellent and comical. But the main reason, I suspect, is a self-perpetuating lack of critical mass. Women don't fish because other women don't. This was penned by Kate Golden, entitled Fishing While Female, The Checkered History of a Late-Blooming Obsession. Kate has an interesting history, and, some would argue, a more interesting future. She and her husband recently purchased a sailboat, quit their jobs, and started preparing it for open-sea voyage. Living from a boat, eating what you catch, wide-open spaces of uncertainty? Sounds intriguing to me, right? Let's find out together how she got here in this week's podcast. You know, I, I came about your story in the Sierra Club magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll link to that in the description of this podcast. But the article is basically about your journey into the angling community and your growing passion for basically everything that comes along with catching and cooking your own fish. So sure. I was curious, what prompted you to write that article? Hmm. Well, I just noticed, you know, I'm, I've moved on to the sailboat and, um, I've been living on a normal person's life on land for the past couple of years, you know, working a nine to five and all that. And I just noticed that when I moved on to the sailboat and started thinking about sailboat type activities, I really like this obsession just got rekindled. <laughs> so when I was trying to write about what it's like, what it's like as a boat person, you know, what this journey has been like, like moving onto the boat and everything. That's, you know, it just, it occurred to me something to write about. And of course I always love writing about food. Um, I'm a journalist. My background is in investigative journalism and um, whenever possible, my topics have always been sort of stomach driven, but it's only now that I'm no longer working for a serious outlet that I can write about things like, you know, catching fish for fun. <laughs> Tell me more about this adventure that you're on currently. Yeah, I moved to Australia about two and a half years ago with my husband um, for work. And there happened to be a little sailing club around the corner from where we were living. And we started sailing every day on Sundays in tiny little boats, lasers, little dinghies. And, um, 
as part of that, we just started reading sailing books. It was like the classic sailing memoirs, Bernard Montassier sailing alone around the world, you know, the long way, stuff like that. And at some point I read this book <laughs> that I only got because it was like $4 on the, in the Kindle store. And it was called Get Real, Get Gone, Become a Modern Sea Gypsy and Sail Away Forever. <laughs> and <laughs> That's a great title. I didn't even think it was a real thing. I just thought the title was hilarious. And I was like, I'll pay $4 for that. <laughs> <laughs> and the authors had this incredible attitude toward life and boating. And they really bridged the gap for me that I think it, probably a lot of people feel when they hear about people doing strange sailing adventures and things like this, that it doesn't seem like a thing that a normal person could do. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I grew up in some sailing family. <laughs> so tell me about your, you know, where you grew up. I'm from suburban Maryland and uh, we didn't really do much fishing in those days. Once a year, maybe twice a year, we'd go down to the Chesapeake and try crabbing. Um, very low-level crabbing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think we got a crab trap till I was 16 years old, and I just thought it was the most amazing invention. Not that we ever caught anything, but... Did you, yeah. enjoy, did you enjoy doing that? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I loved it. It's just that it didn't feel like a thing that you would do, like, all the time. It was like a once-a-year kind of trip. It was a big damn deal. So the boat you're on now uh, is named Argo, right? How did now? Did you guys come up with that, or was that was it named prior to you acquiring this boat? Uh, tell me, tell me about how this this you found the boat and and how the name came to be. If if you know any of that, I don't know. I would love to know. It's a great name because obviously Argo is the boat that Jason sailed around with his Argo knots. Um, having adventures and looking for golden fleeces. But the boat came with the name, and I have dug a little bit about into the boat's history, but I haven't been able to learn much about the specific boat. So our boat is a Nicholson 32. Um, Nicholson is the maker who was probably Camper and Nicholson, and it probably dates back to about 1966, although when we were sold the boat, we were told it was 1979. Um, this is just from looking at, like, old boat diagrams. This was a very popular, it's a classic seaworthy boat with, like, a deep keel. It's a very narrow sort of boat. It's a lot smaller than a, 30, a modern 32-foot boat. Um, it's a Bermuda sloop. And it's just one of those really lovely tried and test, like really well tested old boats. Um, when I looked into the history of Argo and the Nicholson 32s, I learned that, um, you know, in Sydney, boat building used to be a huge industry. Like the waterfront here looked so different, it was much more industrial. And there were a number of, of Nicholsons that, of these boats that were built in the mid-60s, and it just strikes me that it was such a different time. Like, you look in the newspapers from back then, and um, 
there was there was an article about every stage of the Nicholson's development, like the mold getting shipped down from England and the first one coming off the line. And and there were big ads in the paper for sailboats and things like that. It was just such a different world. So our boat kind of harkens, harkens back to that time of um, when uh, sailing around the world was a more popular thing for people to do, I guess. So whose idea was it? Was it your idea or your husband's idea to acquire this boat, and, and how did you come to acquire it? I know this is a little bit unusual, but it was my idea. I was, <laughs> I gave the Crazy Sea Gypsy book to Wesley, because we share a lot of our books. And we're just sitting in bed one, one night, and I turned to him, and I'm like, would you ever want to do something like that? Just, you know, quit our jobs and move on to a sailboat and live cheap and see the world? And he actually said yes. So, <laughs> Were you surprised by that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Wesley, <laughs> Wesley had like a normal person. He was on the academic track until he quit his job in September. Um, it's not the sort of thing that you take off a couple of years to go sailing in the middle of. Sure. <laughs> um, he's a research statistician and I'm a journalist and... You can see how a journalist might want to be fancy free, but the statistician is not that kind of job. Really. <laughs> you don't mean like a lot of traveling statisticians. But you asked about like how it all started. It really started with that question and us kind of both realizing that we would do something that crazy. And then we just tentatively started looking to see like, okay, so how much is a boat, you know, the sort that you would sail a long way and what could you find around here and it just kind of got I don't know just snowballed and we started boat shopping and soon enough we found Argo who was not Argo was not the first boat that we put an offer on but she was uh, much cheaper than the one that we had just walked away from <laughs> and, it, and it all worked out obviously well so far. in progress in progress what what is your timeline like kate what it um you guys are in sydney right now and uh, i'm guessing you're working on this boat uh and i know you have a blog up about your progress and uh and about your your prospective journeys and mm -hmm. um so what what does your itinerary if you have one or you know your timeline look like for these these adventures so we've quit our jobs we quit our jobs back in august and september um, which was about, I think, eight or nine months after we decided to do this. We were both getting paid pretty well, so we just worked as long as we could stand it uh, before we quit. We moved onto the boat in August and um, have been working on turning the boat from basically a day sailor into a real ocean-going cruiser. So cyclone season is kind of the main thing that we need to plan around in terms of weather. And that goes through April, May. Like, we wouldn't want to start going north toward cyclone areas until then. So um, pretty soon, and I would say, like, in the next week, we'll have our anchoring system set up. It's very exciting. And we'll start sailing around uh, a few days at a time and then longer trips and up and down the Australian coast. And then perhaps in May, we'll head out to New Caledonia, which, is, which takes about a week going from Queensland. And from there, I think it's about two days to Vanuatu. So 
we would spend some time in those countries, but I'm not sure what happens after that. Like I have never been one for a huge long-term plan, but in this case, it's even less so because we're just figuring out whether we like this lifestyle, you know, and um, whether we can hack it. And there's, there's a lot to learn along the way. So I think we'll just see how it goes and then decide. Do either of you have sailing in your background? Does Wesley have sailing uh, roots? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Just the ding, just the dinghy sailing. Although I'm, I mean, we got to be pretty good laser sailors. And as far as the actual sailing, dinghy sailing is really good training for sailing larger boats. It's all the same, and it's it's actually easier on a keel boot because you can't you can't capsize, or at least not. Except for extreme circumstances. Okay. <laughs> Sailing the keelboat's pretty easy. The hard part is everything else, the logistics. Um, understand just repairing the boat, understanding what the boat needs, and taking care of the boat is is almost a full time job in itself. And certainly when at this point when we're getting the boat up and up into snuff, it's it's like <sighs> full time for both of us, um, especially for Wesley, who has a lot more handy skills than I do. <laughs> sure. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can pull, you can hold your own though. Um, just from, just from reading, uh, some of your stuff. I'm getting better. I, I don't have a lot of confidence about it, but it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this is just to learn different kinds of things than just what you read in books. So we can get back to this here in a little bit, but the the you know the main reason that I wanted to talk to you, Kate, was because in your article you have a, a really cool story about coming into the fishing world, and mm-hmm. how, about how that came to be, and you talked about not having a long term plan or really not worrying about that often, and and it's funny you said that because that's exactly what I that's exactly how I felt just reading your article. Um, and by the way, I really enjoyed reading it. It was, it was really well written and I just really enjoyed reading it. I want you to know that. Um, and so anyway, you were exposed to the joys of fishing, uh, by your old housemate, Meg. So tell tell me how this came to be. So Meg invited me to Alaska at a time when I had decided to switch careers from something else and that wasn't sure what the two was going to be. So I wasn't sure what to do next, and and Alaska seemed as good a place as any to go. And I go up to Alaska, and I it's basically taking a vow of poverty because Meg got me an interview at the local newspaper, and uh, I was a stringer, which I learned means that they string you along week by week, telling you that eventually they will give you a real job. Um, but they pay you 15 cents a word. And I was real hungry. <laughs> so, <laughs> and also I had, I just sort of d- didn't have any real newspaper training. So it wasn't like I had this burning desire to be, you know, Washington Post investigative reporter or something like that. <laughs> I was just like astounded by the notion that someone might pay me to write about things that interested me. So, I wanted to know what was going on at that, um, the uh, hatchery. And Valdez is just a huge fish town. The salmon industry is basically the backbone of the place. 
And I got myself a tour of the hatchery and I'm looking at like all these fish go up this like tube and people are just taking the row out, you know, so they can make more hatchery fish. And some of the row ends up getting sent to Japan where it becomes Ikura. And I just was so hungry. I was like, what are you doing with the rest of that fish? <laughs> and I see it all the way to the end. And it's like going into this giant tub lined with plastic. And I was horrified, absolutely aghast. <laughs> there was so much fish being wasted. So I asked them if I could just have a tiny amount of it. <laughs> I'm like basically backed up Meg's Volkswagen Rabbit to the tub and lined the back with plastic myself and got as much fish as I could carry. So then I go to, I, then I have a problem, right? Because there's no, like I have no experience filleting fish and <laughs> there is no... Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just go to a fish station and I wing it. And I've got, like, probably six or seven fish. Like, really, you know, good size salmon. <laughs> mature salmon. And I'm getting some weird looks um, from the other fishermen. And I thought that it was just because, like, I was a girl. And maybe that was part of it. But probably it had more to do with the fact that the bag limit is two per day. And if they had noticed the fish up close, I don't know if they did or not, but like it was super spawny. You know how salmon gets um, near the end of its lifespan. Sure. It, it just, it starts to fall apart. They're and like, de they're like, they're like the dead zombies. Right. That's, that's not what you're fishing for when you're like fishing for salmon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't really know better. And I just learned how to fillet and I took it over to the processor where, you know, charter fishermen get their stuff vacuum packed and I got my stuff vacuum packed and I had like a whole supply of fish. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> now, did you enjoy, did you enjoy dining on that fish as much as you enjoyed dining on, you know, that first, that first experience you had when Meg's, oh, I don't know if it was her boyfriend or her husband brought or sent you guys some fish from Alaska and you just talked about how great it was. Now, was it, mm. was it as good that time when you went and harvested, well, sort of harvested it yourself? Well, look, um, I was ignorant, but I, it, it's not like I don't have taste buds. Right. <laughs> I did notice. <laughs> okay. I did notice. Um, but I have to say I was really, there is a special flavor that comes when you're feeling smug and pleased with yourself. So I did enjoy it. It's just that um, I learned how much better it could be. And it's not like these days, you know, I wouldn't eat the spawny fish unless I was really hard up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So going backwards, just a, just a second. In your article, you know, you talk about this move. And even when we're talking now, it almost seems blasé. I, I have a hard time believing that. Moving it's to this, Alaska? It's well, it's this it's this easy to just uh oh, I'm looking for a change, so I'm gonna quit my job and uh I'm gonna move to Alaska <laughs> to a remote fishing village in Valdez. I've I've been to Valdez. It's it's not a uh it's not an exciting place. I mean it's beautiful and yes, the fishing's <laughs> amazing, but um uh. the, well it, it it just seems like in the article especially, you're just like, Okay, well, yeah, let's go to Alaska. 
Well, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I had, before that I was in Africa because what I wanted to do was be a primatologist. So I spent a year working at a research station in a really remote part of the Central African Republic, following gorillas around from dawn to dusk every day. And that was quite a hard life. Um, you know, it was quite interesting, but at the end of it, I decided that, that for various reasons, that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And, and I have to say, I also lived in these really primitive situation where this, this field camp, I lived in the tent the whole time. We didn't have like running water or refrigeration or even a proper medicine if something went wrong. And I was having, it was hot because you're in the tropics <laughs> and I was having these dreams of ice. So when Meg, you know, called me wanting me to come hang out with her in Alaska so she would have a friend, uh, it didn't seem like such a crazy thing to me at all. It just felt like things falling into place maybe. And I told her I wasn't going to move up without a job, but one day she just called me and she said, Jed's reporter at the Valdez Vanguard just walked out. I set up an interview for you. It was very cheeky of her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she had you there. Yeah, and Jed said, well, your writing seems good, but I'm not going to hire somebody from the lower 48 um, sight unseen. you got to come up here, and you also would have to decide whether you actually want to live in Valdez, because as you said, Valdez is not an exciting place to live. And people have a tendency to go up there and run right back home, <laughs> which in fact is what, so there was one other guy who was in contention for this reporter position when I got there. I was very dismayed to learn. Um, and he was from Redondo Beach and he spent a week up there and then he, he went back to Redondo Beach because he couldn't hack it. So I maybe got the job by default rather than merit. <laughs> I'm sure they were glad they which got is, you though. Oh, uh, well, at 15 cents a word, that was a bargain for that. <laughs> That's true. Very true. <sighs> do you regret Do you regret that job at all? No. I mean, I, I loved it. I learned a lot. Jed, who was only three years older than me, he had been thrown into this editor position of a two-year, of a tiny paper, um, just by circumstance. And he's actually a very gifted editor. And we're still friends. <laughs> very cool. So yeah, so I learned a lot from him, and then eventually um, that newspaper, the Valdez Vanguard, got bought by the other two-person newspaper in town, the Valdez Star, which was quite a rag, if I do say so myself. They never spelled the name the same way twice. And um, Valdez Vanguard went out of business real suddenly. I got a call from Jed saying I was out of a job. And the next day, uh, someone set me up with a job basically working as a contractor for the oil company, which is what a lot of people end up doing there. So um, I get the impression from reading your article here that a lot of your passion for fishing comes from the joy that you get out of cooking and eating it. Is that accurate? 100%. <laughs> that is 100% accurate. <laughs> you, you talk about your eating experiences like it's, uh, it's otherworldly, I guess. I could put it that way. <laughs> I like eating fish, no doubt about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and you and you mentioned that's part of because so after Alaska, you went back to what you went to Wisconsin, right? 
I mean, it wasn't so direct. I actually went to grad school for journalism in California, and then I went back to Alaska, and then I went to Wisconsin, and there were reasons for all of those things. But but yeah, I eventually ended up in Wisconsin. Where where along that route did you meet Wesley? I met him on my second trip to Alaska when I came back to take a real job at a newspaper um, when I thought I was going to stay in Juneau long term. And then I met Wesley, who fit the bill perfectly because he's born and raised in Juneau. Uh, then he hatched a plan to go to graduate school in the Midwest. So. And you went along? Yeah, I went along. And uh, was, that, was that the first time you ever went ice fishing, was in Wisconsin? For real, Yes. Yeah, I think we actually tried to do a little bit of ice fishing at one point in Juneau, but we were unsuccessful. But in Wisconsin, that's where I saw how it's really done. <laughs> yeah, on a bucket with probably a six-pack and uh, and some bobbers, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Kate, do you only fish for food, or do you, do you get more out of the experience? Uh, I get a lot out of the experience. I, I mean... It's certainly initiated by the fact that I'm a hungry person who just loves fishing. And I am really into just being self-reliant. But I just, I mean, I love being outside. And I, I mean, I love spearfishing too, because I get to see all the crazy underwater worlds. And every kind of fishing has some kind of charm to it, I think. But I don't, um, I don't really do like catch and release fishing. I, that's something that kind of doesn't sit well with me. And it's just hard for me to believe that the fish don't suffer. So I guess I prefer to fish for food and like only kill stuff if I'm going to eat it. (laughs) One, one of the experiences you wrote about in your article that I really appreciated was your, you know, you're getting into spearfishing and still having the capacity and the interest in educating others, uh, because you you talked about an experience meeting a, another female who had, who was very curious about what you were doing. You had just uh, I think caught, you'd speared a cuttlefish, and she was asking about it, and you you were taking the time to tell her basically what you knew about it, and just to kind of let her know that yeah, it's it's not that hard to get into. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of fish in the city, at least where we are. <laughs> For sure. And there's just not enough women doing it. Like, I I would love to have some female companions <laughs> when fishing. And I don't know why, as I wrote in the article, um, I think it's sort of just a critical mass thing more than anything else. Although the marketing it can be quite off-putting for women, I think. I I would love to see more parity in the sport and women feeling like they are allowed to like pick up the equipment and just try. Do you think it's getting better? Yeah. I don't know if I have enough like experience or data on that. I know women fishermen in, in Alaska. I know women who fish commercially and I know women who fish like a, a handful of women who fish like sport but i really don't know any women who are as obsessed with it as a fair few men that i know why why do you think it's important for more women to become involved in fishing because fish is delicious and it's a wonderful sport there's no reason that women shouldn't experience all the charms of that sport as men do 
I was kind of hoping you could tell me about your can't stop fishing philosophy. Is, <laughs> is, is this something you've pondered over the years or, or, or just come to realize in a, in a premonition like fashion after your first spearfishing experience? It's more something that I notice after the fact, or if someone tells me that I'm being obsessive, that like I'm casting someplace for way longer than I should, or I'm, I'm just <laughs> like, I, I can't stop until I've actually caught something. I fall into this strange obsessive mode and uh, <laughs> later I'll be like, why did I spend eight hours out there? (laughs) (laughs) Like I didn't actually, okay, so here's a good example. Um, That rock kill that I caught was really good learning for me because I took it a little too far, the rock kill that I put a picture of in my newsletter. So I I went spearfishing for like two and a half or three hours. And I know that you're supposed to like recover when you're free diving. Um, but I didn't really know how much time you're supposed to spend on the surface compared to like how much time you spend below. And so what I was doing was basically going down, spending as long as I could down there trying to catch a fish until my lungs felt like they were going to burst. And then I would come up, wait till I felt semi okay. And then go right back down again. Cause I was kind of obsessed. And I did this for so long. <laughs> I, I just kept doing it until I started to feel kind of woozy. And um, I did get the rock kale at the end of it just because I was like, well, damn it. Let's just see what those taste like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go home empty handed. They're actually not bad at all. Later that night, I got really sick. Like I was hearing the fireworks from the bathroom floor. And I think that it was because I basically took, I was diving too much for too long. I learned a good lesson to like temper the obsession a little bit. Take it easy. Sometimes you got to tell yourself part of what I'm trying to do is kind of, I don't know. I feel very ornery about being told I have to take a lot of equipment with me in a sport that is so dominated by marketing um, and can be sort of sky's the limit expensive. So I love to go out with like the minimal, the most minimal possible equipment. And that's why I talked about like starting with a princess themed pink kids fishing rod. <laughs> and, and the same is true with my spear. It's basically that princess rod all over again. It's like the $20 pole spear. And it definitely makes life more difficult, but I, I don't know. It's just kind of how I'm wired. <laughs> I'll get it if I really need it. I I guess I kind of feel like, I don't know, some sort of pride in not looking the part almost. Yeah, because you're able to do it without all of this gear that they say you need, but you're able to be successful without it. And isn't there this kind of curse that like as soon as you get some like really fancy piece of equipment, whether it's for, you know, your journalism or your painting habit or your fishing habit, like as soon as you get the super fancy piece of equipment, that's when you like stop doing it. <laughs> or the nice piece of equipment gets destroyed. Yeah, yeah, or that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you have a favorite fishing story or experience that you talk about more often than others since you've gotten into the into the sport? 
I think a fishing, a lot of my fishing stories are like, I am the butt of the joke, I realized recently. Um, so they don't tend to be like, and then I caught this monster fish and we ate for days. It's more <laughs> like mistakes that I have made that are humorous. Um, and I, <laughs> so there is one story I didn't put in my piece. Um, this <laughs> is slightly embarrassing. <laughs> in Juneau, Alaska, there's a lovely reservoir dam. It's about two hours walk up from town called Salmon Creek Reservoir. And it's one of the many lakes that got filled with baby trout back in the 1920s. And that was right, right after it was built. So the fish up there, they don't have that much to eat. And they never really get very big. They're these tiny little things, and they're just voracious. Like, we'll basically bite anything shiny, and they're really fun to catch. So I went up there one day, and I had my fishing rod, and I am just determined to catch a bunch of fish, and I caught 16 of them that day. <laughs> Was this with your Barbie fishing rod? I think I had upgraded to an ugly stick by then. <laughs> okay, good good choice. <laughs> $30. Well spent. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but I don't think I actually owned more than three lures. And yeah, I went up there and I caught 16 fish in the space of about an hour, hour and a half. Like they all fit in a single gallon size Ziploc bag. That's how small they are. Um, and then I walked down the mountain and I was feeling very proud of myself. And then I learned that the limit is actually 12. <laughs> <laughs> how did you learn that? Oh, you know, leafing through the regulations book. And also I was doing a, I think I did a story at that time on the history of the brook trout getting dropped into lakes. So uh, it's probably still there in the Valdez Vanguard archives somewhere, or the Juno Empire archives. But um, yeah, I had this tendency to kind of shoot first, check regulations later that I have really reformed over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a good example of it we like, i ate so much so much brook trout that i got sick of it that's a good learning lesson for others too hoping to get into it uh, be sure you check your regulations before you go out catching but can fish. i tell you like being committed to that ethic is so much more difficult where i am now because you know i'm trying to spearfish right so there's a different regulation for every fish out there and there's just like a zillion fish so you go out like you have a few species in mind that you're targeting and the regs are different for everyone like what the legal length are the bag limit and so forth um but it's a lot to learn i i find myself just like carrying around the regulations booklet just so that i can bone up on the identification and bag limits and all le sizes and all that stuff because it's tough <laughs> Have you found a favorite fish out in Australia, uh, something that you prefer chasing over other fish species? I am currently trying to spear a morwong, which are one of the slower, dumber fish, but not quite as slow and dumb as a rock kale. I'm like moving up the slow, dumb, the intelligence ranking of underwater species when spear fishing. Um, and I have just figured out where a sort of Morwong city is around Sydney. And I just got to go back there and 
and make it happen. <laughs> one, I guess I have one more question. What, what does Wesley think about your obsession? Oh, he benefits. He also likes fishing. He doesn't like it quite to the level that I do, but he grew up in Alaska and has a, a firm love for the sport, I would say. We used to um, work in the same building in Juneau, which was, uh, it was like the Juneau Empire newspaper building was right on the water. And they rented out half the building to other firms. So Wesley worked at this engineering firm. And we would meet for lunch at times and just go fishing like right across the street. <laughs> so he's my fishing buddy. Now you just have to take him spearing with you. Oh, he got himself a spear at the same time. Good deal. So we're in a, a little bit of a competition. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Where is he at on the slow, dumb scale, by the way? Um, he's also at Bream. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you again for taking the time and, and uh, telling, us some, telling us some stories about your life as, a, as an angler. And, and thanks for helping to, to promote the sport. I think it's really important, like you said, to get everyone involved, you know, and more women especially. So thanks for what you do. Yeah, happy to chat with you. It's, it's been fun, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what happens in Kazakhstan. Kate, thank you for taking the time out of your summer day in Australia to chat with me. As I'm talking now, snowplows are out cleaning up what was a two-day quote-unquote blizzard of unimpressive proportions. But it is March, so I'm still bitter about it. Here's to Australia and the summer months. Kate, please keep us posted on your project. An audio journal would be awesome for the Fish Stories archive. I'll edit it. Check out fishstories.org and the Fish Stories Facebook page for updates on our journey to Kazakhstan with USAI's team. I don't want to jinx it or anything, but I think they're going to bring home some bling. Can't wait for you to hear about it. And cheer for USAI's team on their Facebook page. It really does help. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to stay awesome. Fish stories.